It's Thursday, June 17th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Biden and Vladimir Putin had their much-anticipated summit on Wednesday, and both walked away saying that the meeting was positive and constructive. Biden said he pressed Putin on recent cyber attacks and human rights issues, but Putin didn't seem to cede much ground. They did agree to allow their ambassadors to return to their posts, begin strategic stability talks on nuclear arms, and consultations on cybersecurity issues. Nahal Tusi, foreign affairs correspondent at Politico, joins us for key takeaways. Next, the housing market continues to have a much lower supply of homes needed to meet the demand. And now we have a better idea of how many are needed. A new report by the National Association of Realtors says we need 5.5 million more housing units, everything from single-family homes to multifamily units. The report does call for policy responses, some of which are in President Biden's infrastructure proposal. Nicole Friedman, housing reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Finally, the Federal Reserve expects inflation to rise about 3.4% this year, and conversations started swirling about what it means for the markets and the economy. But what does it mean for normal people? The short answer, expect higher prices for everything from used cars and airline fares to groceries and gas. Alicia Adamchek, money reporter at CNBC, joins us for what a rise in inflation means for you. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I talked about the proposition that certain critical infrastructure should be off limits to attack, period, by cyber or any other means. I gave them a list. If I'm not mistaken, I don't have it in front of me, 16 specific entities. Joining us now is Nahal Tusi, foreign affairs correspondent at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Nahal. Hey, thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about the big summit between President Joe Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin. Both walked away from it uh, with some positive things to say about the other. Everything seemed to play out quite all right. No big formal agreements on anything, but there were a couple of moments of common ground. Nahal, help us walk through some of the top moments here. The gist of it was that they kind of agreed to keep talking. And given that the Russian-U.S. relationship is in such a bad situation and on a downward trajectory, simply the fact that they, first of all, talked and be agreed to keep talking on certain things is considered something of a win. In terms of what emerged, um, I would say two things. One uh, was this agreement to continue discussions on what they use the term strategic stability. That usually refers to like nuclear arms issues. So there's going to be continued discussions on that. And that's a good thing for people who want the earth to continue to exist, I guess. (laughs) Um, and And then the other thing was, you know, that Biden that he made it very clear to Putin that there have to be some limits on these cyber attacks, especially when it comes to critical infrastructure like water systems, that sort of thing. Um, and he he made it sound like he, you know, got that across to Putin and that he hopes that at some point down the line, there can be some sort of a cybersecurity arrangement of sorts that, you know, deals with this particular issue. And to be clear, it, it often involves criminals that don't have anything to do with the Kremlin. You know, um, it's but it's more about making sure that Russia will hold people accountable uh, for those types of activities, even if it's not directed by the Kremlin. And obviously, you know, we don't want the Kremlin to carry out those activities. And I think the U.S. Uh, Biden made it very clear that, as he put it, like the U.S. has some serious cyber capabilities. Would you like it if we do that to you? So those are, I would say, right. two things. And then they're going to talk about a bunch of other stuff from Afghanistan to Syria to whatever. 
But he, he himself, Biden, admitted that it would be months before we knew if, if anything seriously concrete was going to result from that. Yeah, the cyber stuff was a big issue going in. I think President Biden gave Putin a list of 16 entities that were critical to U.S. infrastructure that he said should be off limits. And Putin, for his part, did say, you know, we, we want to start some uh, consultations on the cyber security issue. Not necessarily something that President Biden said, but it, it did seem like I guess the message came across. But he he never uh, accepted responsibility for it anyway. I mean, he uh, believed that they should be faulted for some of these cyber attacks that were going through. Yeah, in fact, Putin claimed without any evidence that most cyber attacks come from the United States, right. uh, that this is where all the criminals are based. I mean, look, it, it's you know he is never gonna stand up there and say, oh, yeah, we did something wrong or we're responsible. I mean, this, that is just not how Vladimir Putin stays in power. That is not how he controls the narrative for his own domestic constituency. But, you know, that's, that's just it, But that doesn't mean that they won't work on certain fronts, especially if the U.S. makes it very, very clear, as Biden tried to do, that it's in their interest to work with on some sort of an arrangement on this. And it's it's part of the problem, to be honest, when it comes to the cyber stuff is so much of it is classified and behind the scenes and not to mention highly technical, that it's really hard to tell when there is actually progress or not, because oftentimes they just can't talk about it, especially in Washington. So it's one of those things that's going to be hard to monitor. This summit was a, a far cry from the last one that happened between former President Trump and Helsinki. Putin, for his part, said that uh, President Biden was a balanced professional man. He's clearly a very experienced politician. President Biden was fielding questions whether he could trust Vladimir Putin. He said, you know, it's not about trust. It's about our country's self-interest. You know, I'm, I told him what what America needs out of uh, our ongoing relationship. Yeah, I mean, look, this is normal, you know, foreign policy is like every country has its own interests and you're trying to advance your country's interests. And so Biden has a very realistic point of view on that. And Putin said something similar about like, this is our national interest, that sort of thing. Although, you know, when it comes to Putin, people will argue it's his self-interest. He cares uh, more about the the Russian uh, population as a whole. Um, But, you know, the way Biden also kind of spun it, and I I found this super interesting was um, it was sort of like, wow, you know, nice country you got there it would be a shame if anything happened to it. <laughs> right. right. And, but, but, you know, but it was, it was this way of doing it. He was like, look, I was telling Putin like, wow, how would you feel if criminals attacked your energy pipelines, you know, or how would you, how, like, if you want to have more trade uh, between Russia and other countries, maybe you shouldn't keep imprisoning American businessmen. You know, it was this whole idea of like, kind of help me help you. Um, but, you know, you could also see it as a veiled threat. So, right, exactly. <laughs> um, so, he, so that was kind of how Biden tried to spin it. And, you know, I mean, Putin's an old hand at this stuff, and it's hard to say, um, if, if he fell for that, you know, but it, if, if Biden does through sanctions, other means, if he feels like talks aren't going to work, if he uses these other things and really, really imposes a cost on Putin and his and the people around him, the oligarchs in particular, then it could start to hurt and Putin could start to make some moves. There was a tense moment during his press conference. They had solo press conferences where he got a, a little combative with a reporter. He later on, before getting on the plane, he actually came back and said, sorry for being a wise guy and, and apologized for it, something we hadn't seen in a long time. So overall, how did he fare throughout this? 
Well, you know, his assessment was, quote, I did what I needed to do. So he seemed quite confident in how he did. You know, it's, it's never a good idea to get into a fight with the White House press corps, even if the question being asked is really, really frustrating to you. Biden, you know, the, the reporter asked, why are you so confident that, that Putin will change his behavior? And Biden was kind of like exasperated. He was like, I never said that. And he didn't ever say that. He never said he thinks Putin's going to do anything. So he was just kind of frustrated, I think, at the end and got into that. Then he did apologize, which you're right. We haven't seen that in a long time, given the Trump years. But overall, again, he seemed quite happy in how he did. But let's not forget, they set the bar pretty low on this. They right. warned us in advance, don't expect any major agreements, whatever. And they met that very low bar. Nahal Tusi, foreign affairs correspondent at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The U.S. has not kept up with kind of the long-term historical level of housing construction. And so they're saying if the U.S. had stayed at that long-term historical level of one and a half million new units a year, then there would be 5.5 million more units in the market today. Joining us now is Nicole Friedman, housing reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Nicole. Thank you for having me. We love bringing you on to talk about the housing market and how crazy it has been you know, one of the ongoing themes that we've seen lately is that the demand for houses is far more than the supply that we have. And uh, we just got a report from the National Association of Realtors, which is giving a number to how many more housing units we need. They say that we need 5.5 million more units. Nicole, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing in this report. So the National Association of Realtors just came out with this report that kind of attempts to quantify the deficit. And so what they did is they basically said from 1968 to 2000, the kind of annual building rate in the U.S. was about 1.5 million units a year. And then in the past 20 years, from 2001 to 2020, the annual rate fell to less than 1.3 million new units a year. And so they're saying basically in the last 20 years, the U.S. has not kept up with kind of the long-term historical level of housing construction. And so they're saying if the U.S. had stayed at that long-term historical level of one and a half million new units a year, then there would be 5.5 million more units in the market today. And in the report, they say that we basically need everything. Help us break down that 5.5 million because we need single family homes, buildings with two to four units and beyond that as well. So this is trying to cover the entire housing market. So that 5.5 million includes for sale housing, but also includes rental housing. It breaks down the five and a half million. They say the need is about 2 million single family homes. And then the rest is in multifamily. It's 1.1 million buildings with two to four units, 1 million units in two to four unit buildings, and then 2.4 million units in buildings with five or more units. So those might be your big apartment buildings. We know that the price of lumber is pretty high right now. Shortages of appliances are also factoring into a lot of this stuff. What did the uh, organization, the National Association of Realtors, what did they call for as far as how to fix this? Because we're going to have to build extra homes every year, I think they said, over the course of a decade just to make up for this. So that's what they're saying is that to kind of fill this deficit, that builders would have to kind of really ramp up the pace of construction above what they're doing today for the next decade or so. And builders have definitely increased their activity 
especially in the past year, as there's been a lot more demand. But there are some obstacles in terms of material costs and how quickly they can acquire new land or hire more workers. And so builders do face some limits in how quickly they can grow. And so the National Association of Realtors is saying there should be a federal policy response and that, you know, maybe in the infrastructure package that housing should be included as critical infrastructure. Yeah, some of the ideas that they were proposing are present in President Biden's plan. I think they also said that it would create 2.8 million jobs if they were to increase construction of these units that we need. The number does differ, though. So this is this report from the National Association of Realtors. They say 5.5 million. But there are some other studies and housing economists say that that number is a little different, maybe uh, less that they were pointing to. So there's definitely disagreements among people who study the market. You know, how big is this deficit? Everybody agrees that right now demand is above supply, but by how much is, you know, something that different experts have different takes. And so one consultant I talked to says they think that the shortage is actually less than a million units. And so much smaller than what the National Association of Realtors thinks. And they're looking, they're factoring in population growth and saying that the population is not growing as quickly as it used to. And so maybe we don't need to be building at those same long-term historical levels that we were building back in the second half of the 20th century. We hear a lot of stories about millennials and staying at home longer. I mean, that just points to the need for more affordable housing, it seems like, because the stories that we hear are always that people are living at home longer because they can't afford to buy homes or, or continue to rent, things like that. So it's definitely hard to say. These are all kind of assumptions that analysts need to make. You know, how much of young people living at home longer is because of affordability and they you know, want to start their own households, but they are unable to do so versus how much is it, you know, that people are getting married later because they want to get married later and that that's a cultural shift that is distinct from the affordability concerns. And so everybody kind of has their own assumptions about how quickly household formation is going to be growing, which is, you know, a really key kind of input to any of these um, types of assumptions. Nicole Friedman, housing reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Plenty of people have been saving money over the past year as a result of just not going out, social distancing, but also as a result of stimulus. And that's true for individuals and businesses. And so now that the U.S. is reopening, all these people who have been saving money, they want to go spend it, right? But COVID did many things that also messed up supply chains. Joining us now is Alicia Adamchik, money reporter at CNBC. Thanks for joining us, Alicia. Thanks so much for having me. I wanted to talk about inflation. The Federal Reserve expects inflation will climb up to 3.4% this year. That's higher than what they were previously forecasting. And, you know, when things like that happen, Wall Street starts buzzing. What is it going to mean for the markets and economy? You wrote an article about what it means for normal people, which, which I love. And mostly what it means for all of us is we're paying higher prices. We're already seeing a lot of higher prices due to things with the pandemic, but this kind of trend is just going to continue with this. So, Alicia, start us off. How do we get inflation? What is it all about? And then we'll kind of get into what it means for us. Inflation is basically when demand outpaces supply and then prices go up. So it's pretty normal. (laughs) It happens all the time. In the U.S., we aim for around 2%, like, you know, your price of living increase and, and things like that. So the COVID-19 pandemic and, you know, everything that happened as a result of that, now it's 
higher than that. And it's much higher than, you know, like economists maybe were anticipating. So I can talk a bit about some of the factors. One thing is low interest rates set by the Federal Reserve. So we've seen that really low mortgage interest rates, low interest rates on a car loan. And then people, not everyone, but plenty of people have been saving money over the past year as a result of just not going out, social distancing, but also as a result of stimulus. And that's true for individuals and businesses. And so now that the U.S. is reopening, all these people who have been saving money, they want to go spend it, right? But COVID did many things that also messed up supply chains. So there just isn't enough of the things that people want kind of to go around. And that's, you see that, you know, really with cars, car prices are just kind of astronomical right now. You see it in housing, you see it in travel, you see it in like a bunch of different places. You know, gro- grocery prices have also been going up right now. So that's yeah. the first direct impact to us is that our purchasing power has gone down a little bit because of that. Yeah, that that is correct. So the purchasing power goes down a little bit. And, you know, I think most people probably aren't seeing their wages necessarily increase right now in tandem with that. So that just means, you know, things are, are a little bit more expensive for us right now. So I think what kind of economists are saying now is no one knows how long that this will last, that this kind of being like out of sync like this, but they really don't think it will last forever. They're saying maybe a year until we can kind of get things going the right way again. Well, let's move on to what this does for like our saving accounts, investments. Luckily, it seems like not much there for right now, not too much to worry about at least. So if you probably like you and I, we're just like average people, you know, we might have a 401k or an IRA, like retirement, like investments, right? What I'm hearing from people is like, if you have long-term investments in stocks, like you don't really have to do anything. That's good. Equities, that's one way to sort of hopefully outpace inflation, right? Because you're hoping the returns are higher than what inflation is. And something like a savings account, I mean, they already were very low. (laughs) They already were around 0%. So even before this kind of spike, they weren't keeping up with inflation. But, you know, you have emergency cash savings in case you need cash. So you probably don't really want to do anything with that anyway, anything with, you know, the cash in your savings account. Unless you happen to have a lot on hand and you want to invest a little bit of that, maybe you would get a better return. But I think for most people there, at least now, there's no reason to to do anything crazy. And I always love when you guys mention these in in the articles. Experts do say Three to six months worth of expenses stashed away is what you should have. So, you know, it's hard to realize how much you really need sometimes. Three to six months of expenses is what you should aim to have at least. And then finally, investments, how inflation would impact those. For younger people, you know, you probably have a lot of your investment portfolio in stocks. You're probably okay. Uh, You probably don't need to do anything. This might impact older people, like closer to retirement a little bit more because they're more in something like bonds, which would lose a little bit of, you know, their purchasing power because it's, you know, it's just like a set sort of income, you know, at least from investment advisors right now, you know, there's a million different strategies you could employ. But at the end of the day, I think they're saying, this isn't something that you need to like worry about and do and do all these drastic changes kind of like no matter who you are just kind of keep it steady and uh, it'll be fine they just kind of want to see what happens in the in the coming months alicia adamchik <laughs> money reporter at cnbc thank you very much for joining us thank you for having me that's it for today join us on social media Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.